How's everybody doing? Yeah. I feel a good energy. That's great. Um, so thank you so much for being here today. We are right in the middle of a series called Do You Know Him? Where we have just been trying to get to know God. We've been trying to uncover who he is. And so we've talked already about some of his attributes, some of his traits, so that we can step into a real and honest relationship with him. And I think it's important to point out the honest piece of that because the objective here is not to force anybody into anything. We don't want you to feel obligated to have a relationship with God. It should be a privilege. And so we want you to have a real, honest, genuine relationship with him. And so I think the best way to do that is just to begin to to get to know who he really is. And so that's the journey we've been on. I can tell you, I've already learned so much through my studies and through what God is saying and hopefully you feel the same way and we can continue on down this path. So we're gonna spend the next couple of weeks getting into what would be called the moral attributes of God. So we have spent some time talking about his being, his spirituality, his omnipresence, and we've talked about his mental attributes, his knowledge, his wisdom, and now we're gonna get into his morality. And so you might even call it his motives or his intentions. And so just to roll this out properly, what we have to understand is that there's an overriding theme in the Bible when we talk about God's morality. There is a a balance in play here that we need to understand. And so this is what Romans 11.22 says. Plainly, it says, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. So within context here, the apostle Paul is really showing the relation between the Jews and the Gentiles in this day. And he's writing to the Gentiles and he's showing them, your Jewish peers have been spurned because of their disbelief. And yet you guys, pagans, have been accepted into the faith. And so he's just trying to open their eyes to the goodness and the severity of God. And so if we read on in verse 22, it says, on those who fell, severity, but toward you, Goodness. So the urge here from Paul is to acknowledge both the goodness and the severity of God, that we have to understand and acknowledge both of these in order to get to know him. Now, um, the flaw with many modern day Christians is we will very freely accept the, the goodness of God, his love, his mercy, his grace, his patience toward us, and yet we'll deny his severity his, his desire to uphold his righteousness. And there are some really fundamental problems that can occur when we do this. Number one, if we do not accept his severity, it hinders us from realizing or recognizing our own sinfulness, that we're a part of a broken world and, and therefore we are inherently sinful. And so if we have this blind spot in our lives, it hinders us from, from realizing the saving grace that has been made available to us through Jesus. And so we get into this, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it type of mentality when we are deeply broken and we are in desperate need of a savior. And so we have to open our eyes to this. The other problem is the Bible urges us to believe in God and through spiritual maturity to get to know him. And yet how is that possible when we are not willing to accept all of who he is? That, that can't possibly happen. And so if you are going to willfully bury your head in the sand, you aren't gonna get to know 
God for who he is. And so considering the series is all about getting to know him, we just wanna open the door completely to who he is. So as we uncover the moral attributes of God, we will see them falling into both of these true categories, his goodness and his severity. Now, in approaching this, I just wanna make sure we're taking the wisest route. I just wanna make sure we have the right approach here. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna spend the next two weeks talking about God's goodness. And we're just gonna dive into that. And then we're gonna follow that up by talking about the topics that would represent more of his severity. And just my hope is that in covering God's goodness first, we can then see the severity through the right lens, okay? So just kind of a, a sneak peek into what we're getting into, okay? So let's jump into God's goodness. Let's, let's see what this is all about. Now, first off, traditionally, when we talk about God being good, that's broken down into many specific attributes of God. So if you think about it, if, if you say God is good, that seems very open-ended, it seems very vague, right? And so it's broken down into specific attributes that we'll get into over the next two weeks. But I just wanna start with talking about this high-level goodness of God that we see in the Bible because it is prevalent. So this is what God's goodness means. It means that he is the final authority. He's the final standard of good. Everything that God is, everything that he does is worthy of approval. Everything that God is, everything that God does is good. So when we say things like God is good, that shouldn't be this half-hearted, well-intentioned phrase. What that means is he is the final standard of good. He himself is good. We actually see this in Luke 18 when Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. No one is good but him alone. Over and over again in the book of Psalms, we see this theme that the Lord is good. Give him thanks for the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good over and over and over again. But then we kind of take it up a level when we say that everything that God does is good. Because for instance, if I were to say you're kind, you're a kind person, that wouldn't really play itself out until we see that in action, right? I wouldn't be able to really agree to that until I see it in action. And so this is when we see God's goodness really hit the pages when we see that everything he does is good. So let's talk about some of this. And let's just start with creation. So after the six days of creation that we read about in Genesis chapter one, it ends in verse 31 by saying, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So his creation in and of itself testifies of his goodness because according to the final standard of good, he describes it as very good we see that God's goodness spreads to everyone. In Psalm 145.9 says, the Lord is good to all. So God's goodness plays itself out in our lives every single day. Every single day through common grace, through blessings, through protection, we see his goodness on display. Uh, we see in James 1 that every good and perfect gift comes from him. In Matthew 7, we see that our heavenly father gives good things to those that ask him. And Romans 8, we see that in everything, God works for the good of those that love him. This theme just continues on and on. I feel like he's trying to drill it in that God is good. Here's another good example, especially for where we're at in this series. Romans 12, 2. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we've spent the last couple of weeks talking a lot about God's wisdom and how he always knows what's best for us. And once again, this is reaffirmed that his will for us, his purpose for us is good. It's perfect. Now, that's not according to our standard. You need to understand that's not according to your standard. It's according to his. Now, all of this culminates into really showing us the best example of God's goodness, and that is through the redemptive work of Jesus. So when we read John 3:16, one of the more popular scriptures in the Bible, we see a theme here. It says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That sounds an awful lot like a good God to me, a God that wants to love us, a God that wants to save us. And so this continues to be reaffirmed. Now, quick reminder, um, if God is good and we are God's people, then what do you think we should strive to be? Good. So Galatians 6.10 says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, if God is the final standard of good, um, how can I make sure I am accurately reflecting that goodness? How can I make sure that I'm doing this in the right way? And so let me show you uh, the answer in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you wanna know how to accurately reflect the goodness of God, read the Bible. Just, just read the Bible. I so desperately want us to be a church that is obsessed with reading the Bible, that is just enthralled with reading. Every day we're ripping it apart, we're tearing it apart. And I know that that, like, to say read your Bible every day, that's a really like crusty and cliched thing to say from the platform, but I don't care. Do it, do it. I, and, and the reason, honestly, I'm, I'm saying this is because it has changed my life. I'm not just saying this, this, this is from experience. It has changed my life. I've never been the same since. And so I just want you to experience the same thing. And think about it this way. If Jesus himself still walked on the earth, and let's just say part of his schedule was to come to the bridge every day and just teach for 10, 15, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever, would you be here? I would be here every day and I would be bringing people with me. And all I'm saying is that same wisdom, that same knowledge is in the Bible. Get into it, read it, soak it in, understand it so that you can be equipped for every good work. So that's kind of the, the high level version of God's goodness that we read about in the Bible. And so as I mentioned, there are specific attributes that we read about as well that really attest to his goodness. And so I just wanna spend the rest of the day talking about just one of those and kind of breaking it down. So um, that particular attribute is mercy. So I wanna talk about mercy. Now, I have taken a pretty consistent approach throughout this series where I have 
brought these attributes to the forefront by first talking about how they relate to God and then seeing how we respond to that. And with mercy, I'm gonna take a, a different approach. I'm gonna flip it. And I'm gonna first talk about how this relates to us, okay? So just a general definition of mercy is when we show goodness to people who are in misery or distress. So when somebody is distressed, when they are hurting and you show them goodness, that is an expression of mercy. We read this in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. So when we express mercy, we are blessed, we'll receive mercy in return. I think we can agree that this is a good trait, right? But at the same time, I see a gap. I see a disconnect because when I look around the world that I live in, I don't see much mercy on display. And if I'm being real honest, if I look at myself in the mirror, I don't see a lot of mercy being displayed in my own life. So what is it? What is it that fights us here? What is it that pulls us away from acting upon this? So let me read an excerpt from a book called Gospel on Life. This was written by a popular pastor named Tim Keller. And I just want you to, to soak in these words. A merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I worked hard to get where I am, and so can anyone else. That is language of the moralist heart. I am only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. I am completely equal with all other people. That is the language of a Christian's heart. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. So this is what happens. When we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, we start patting ourselves on our, on our back for our morality and for our goodness. What happens is we elevate ourselves above other people. We put ourselves on this fake high ground that then allows us to look down on people. And if you don't believe me, the next time you go down a questionable street and you see a dirty, scraggly, homeless man with a sign, just check your initial thoughts, your instinctual thoughts, and I think you'll see the high ground that we place ourselves on. And when we take this approach, what happens is we can see this dangerous snowball effect occur, where all of a sudden we lose grasp of equality, we lose grasp of humility. And as we elevate ourselves, what we do is we take God's glory. We get in the way of his praise. What happens is you, you take yourself and you pull yourself from under God's grace and you become your own little mini God, just judging people with evil intent. That's what you're doing. And yet this is what I read in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1.26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standard. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's the biblical perspective that we should have. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a glimpse of how God works, okay? Just a quick analogy here that will hopefully open your eyes. About 10 years ago, um, my brother and I, he was leading worship uh, today, we had the fortune of meeting a former NBA player. 
um, just kind of by happenstance. And if you know local sports, this guy, his name is Anthony Bonner. He played um, at SLU University. He went on to play many years in the NBA. And just a random Saturday, we went up to the gym and with 10 guys or so, we, we played ball. Now, this is, um, he was probably 40 years old at this point in time, but um, let's just say his physique had not wiltered or waned. Um, he was 6'9", 250 of just pure muscle. I mean, this, this guy was a beast. And so 10 years ago, I probably would have described myself as a pretty good basketball player. Um, I don't anymore, but I, I would have probably then. And let me just tell you, very early on that Saturday, it became extremely clear how that day would play out. This man destroyed us. He, he, I, I've never been more humbled in an athletic endeavor in my life. It was unbelievable. There was a point in time I remember so vividly, he was guarding Devin, and Devin tried kind of turning the corner on him, going baseline on him. And with his 250-pound frame, he just stepped in front and took the contact. And I promise you, it looked like Devin went shoulder first into a brick wall. It was like stopped on a dime. You're going to have to redirect yourself, brother. It, it was unbelievable. He was dunking on people. He was dribbling past half court, nothing but net. I'm telling you right now, there's nothing I could have done to stop this man. Nothing. So listen, when God sets up his team, he sets it up like Anthony Bonner. Because let me tell you, I have zero recollection of anyone else on that man's team. I just knew Anthony was a problem and we couldn't stop him. So it wasn't about this guy in the corner who could hit threes and another guy that could lock you down on defense. No, it was just Anthony and we couldn't stop him. And I'm telling you, if I could have huddled this guy's team at halftime, I would have looked them in the eyes and said, just get out of his way. There's, there's nothing we can do to stop him. Just get out of the way. And I just wanna tell you the same thing as it relates to God. Would you just get out of the way? Just, just get out of the way. Get off of your moral pedestal and just get out of the way. You have a jacked up perception of yourself. What you're doing is you're distorting the truth and you're hoarding the mercy with which you've been given. So listen, when you come across the poor and the needy, you show them goodness. Well, what if I'm just feeding into their addiction? Get over yourself. Who, who, who are you? You do stupid stuff with your money every day and God keeps giving you more. If, if you run across somebody who's hurting and who's distressed and who has their head stooped, show them goodness. And, and, and let me just resolve the argument that you're gonna have in your head when that comes. You're not too busy. You're, you're not too busy to stop and help somebody. Whatever you're doing can wait. You show them goodness. And, and I know those are really obvious examples, but, but take a look around the room because I'm telling you, there are hurting people. I'm telling you, there are people that don't know how they're going to pay their bills this month. There are people who feel like their families are falling apart. Show them kindness. Wrap your love around them. Be good to them. That is mercy. When you see yourself through the right lens, just as jacked up, as lost, as afflicted as everybody else, it frees you up to show mercy to everyone. I'm going to tell you this. When, when I look around the world, when I look at our country, this is a concept it's time to accept. We would rather stand on our political stands than just showing people love. Just seeing people just like us. Let me read the last part of this um, excerpt again. And just soak this in. 
a sensitive social conscience, sensitive social conscience, and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. Let us be that. Let us do that. I, I feel like I could stay here all day, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn the corner here. Worship team, go ahead and make your way up here. Um, if you don't see this playing out in your life, and just, just, just lean into this. If you don't see this playing out, if, if you don't see mercy being expressed in your life, you don't see that fruit being produced, it's because you're not plugged into the one who produces it. I know people are walking up, but just pay attention here, just focus in on this. I'm gonna get real just for a minute, okay? We have exponentially more people who call themselves Christians than we do true Christians. What we have is a group of people that so desperately want to be revered, so desperately want to be highly thought of that you place yourself on that fake moral high ground and you play the fake role of a Christian. And let me just, I just wanna be abundantly clear here, okay? I wanna say this lovingly. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a Christ follower, and yet you constantly judge and look down on the sin-laden and you spurn the poor and the needy, you are not a Christ follower. Go read the gospels. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus did. I get so worn out from this fake veneer Christianity where we just all wanna be morally accepted. We're gonna talk with a higher pitch in our voice so we can feel like we're joyful. And in reality, we are detached from the Holy Spirit. We're walking around with no power, with no love. We're withering away. We have no love for him, no desire to be obedient to him, and we're producing no fruit in our lives. So let me just tell you, it's time to get off of your moral high ground, and it's time to identify yourself for who you really are. Because listen, when you do that, that's when you can accept God's mercy. That's when you can say, yes, I am lost, I am afflicted, I am distressed, but God is pouring out his mercy in my life right now and through it, I can be attached to him. I can rest under the shadow of his goodness. We've, we've got people here who have this problem. You look down on other people because you don't see yourself for who you really are. And until you do that, you're blocking yourself from the mercy of God. But some of you are looking at me and you're saying, hey man, trust me, I'm well aware of my flaws. I'm well aware of my sin. I know that I have hurt people worse than I can possibly repair. I know that I've messed up beyond anything I can imagine. And I just wanna encourage you with this. God is full of mercy. He will never run out. Let me just read this scripture here and soak this in. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy. Wait, wait a second. I'm distressed. I'm broken. How can I approach his throne with confidence? Let me tell you how. When you are distressed, when you are lost, 
that's typically when people are gonna turn their backs on you. They're gonna walk away from you because they don't wanna be involved in your mess. And that's exactly when God's saying, come here, just, just come here. I know you're distressed. I know that you feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, but I wanna just pour my mercy onto you. I don't know which side of the spectrum you're on here, but can you just stand with me? And, and as you're standing, just close your eyes and just begin to focus in on what God is trying to speak to you right now. Just, just talk to him, tell him, God, show me who I really am so that I can accept your mercy in such a real and honest way. God, I, I am messed up, I'm screwed up. But your mercy is falling. It's falling. Come on, just talk to him right now. Lord, we lift you up right now. We give all of the pain that we've been in. I mean, just this week, we have been going through hell. And yet we give it to you. We've screwed up. Our past is, is not something that we want to represent us. We've messed up. We know we have, God. We're distressed. We're lost. But we rest in your mercy. We rest in your mercy.